Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 142 for May 1st, 2008. Listener feedback number 40. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You could do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now, and we're going to talk about technology and security and protecting yourself online with Mr. Steve Gibson. He is the man who discovered spyware, coined the term, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's been running free security utilities ever since, including Shields Up, and Shoot the Messenger Decombobulator, all at GRC.com. He's also the guy behind SpinRight, which is the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility. Hey, Steve. Hey, hey, Leo. It's May. Hey, it's May. Back to be back with you again. The lusty month of May. We have, yeah, May Day today. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, May Day is, uh, of course, in French, it means help me. Dude, do kids in elementary school still, like, get crate paper streamers and do the Maypole dance? It's and, so funny and you up- should say that. We talked about that this morning on the Gizwiz. I remember that from school. Yeah. Unfortunately, and, I do too. And they'd go, well, they'd go over, <laughs> under, over, under, so they'd braid. Exactly. And yeah. you end up with this, yeah, exactly. Like a a, a streamer braided pole that's it's really called cool. The, called the Maypole. But uh, yeah, I don't, I doubt anybody does that anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> we're antiquarians. Yeah. So uh, we got a Q&A for you today. Uh, yep. Some great listener questions. We love it that you submit your questions. It gives, a, it gives, what's nice about it is it's still a, it's still a security now in the sense that we still, Steve still talks about security, but it's stuff in response to your uh, concerns and interest. Yeah, I think it's the way I think of it is things that are that are, for as you said, interactive and responsive, but also topics that really don't necessarily need their entire show. But, you know, we can we can do it in a piece of a show. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. And we've got some fun things at the end of this as well, as, as I always try to find some some neat, neat, wacky <laughs> things oh let me see i'm gonna jump ahead there there's even a bonus 13th one it's very short i called it the quip of the week i just got a kick out of it quip of the week okay good 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 and some sobering truth and terrific observations and questions and answers uh before we do that though let me mention a brand new sponsor we're really glad to have them along actually they're not new to me they might be new to you you know citrix though oh of course yeah ed Ed yakabuchi and yep yeah Citrix has been around a long, long time. They were really, I think the, uh, and some people say that uh, Citrix ended up writing a lot of NT. A lot of the kernel came from Ed and his team at IBM, and then he went off and formed Citrix. They are the folks behind GoToMeeting and GoToMyPC. These are remote access products. And because they know the intimately, know the kernel and uh, and Windows better than I think anybody, I think they are able to do the best uh, remote access stuff out there. I want to particularly talk about GoToMeeting today. They've been a sponsor on my radio show for know, five years now. 
Um, and I just, I love them. I use them. I actually did a lecture with GoToMeeting with literally hundreds of people. GoToMeeting.com slash twit if you want to find out more. The idea is it's for making, uh, make your online meetings kind of neat and compelling and fun and interesting. Um, you, of course, you don't have to, nowadays, nobody wants to travel anymore. Gas has gotten so expensive. They don't want to fly. They don't want to waste time. So they do a lot of conference calling in business. But the problem with conference calls are kind of stale, frankly, and dry. And let's be honest, most of the time when you're on a conference call, half the participants are, you know, texting, twittering, they're doing other stuff. But go to meeting makes it really like you're there because what happens is you send them the invitation. You can do it ahead of time or on the fly. They click a link. They go to go to meeting.com. And now, now all of a sudden they're seeing your desktop. It's on their screen. So they're seeing the PowerPoint. They're seeing the product demo. Uh, you know, you could you could do pretty much anything that you could do on your computer. They can see it. So it's good for training and collaboration, too, because uh, they can take control. The setup is very quick for you. It just takes a couple of minutes. It is 128-bit SSL encrypted, so it's absolutely secure and uh, very affordable. If you've tried, there's another one, another service like this that comes to mind <clears throat> that is ex- very expensive. Go to meeting, unlimited use, one low flat monthly rate. So you don't have to count the minutes or count the meetings. And I want you to try it free. We have a free trial, a month of unlimited online meetings free, one month. Um, actually, it's not Twit. I, oh, I gave you the wrong URL. It's go to meeting.com slash security now. What am I saying? Go to meeting.com slash security now. You could try it absolutely free. Go to meeting.com slash security now. You've probably heard me talk about it. I'm sure you've been c- considering it. This is a good time. 30 days free. You could show your boss and your clients. Everybody really likes this. Go to meeting.com slash security now. And we really uh, thank them for joining the Twit family. We have some great advertisers. Steve Gibson, uh, do we have any uh, rata or anything oh, we want to cover? Oh, we got tons <laughs> oh, of rata. And, and security news, too, I'm sure. And, well, that's in there, too. Yeah, I sort of call it all sort of, sort of like pre-Q&A right, stuff. Right, right. Um, many listeners have been writing in uh, to grc.com slash feedback is the page on the GRC site for Security Now listeners to send me their thoughts and ideas and questions and show ideas and so forth. Many have been asking about a, a new gizmo called the Yogi Pico. <laughs> Y-O-G-G-I-E Pico, P-I-C-O, as in very, very tiny. Um, it's a USB system i mean a full uh, a full linux pc running a small intel chip in a usb dongle oh, cool and so and, and it purports to be a security system so you plug it in it installs a low level um endis driver which is down deep in the kernel that allows it to intercept all incoming and outgoing traffic. Essentially, it puts a Linux system that's in a USB dongle in line to your network connection. Wow. So I just wanted to acknowledge all the requests from people about, gee, Steve, what do you think about that? I mean, the idea sounds great. Uh, I've noted it, and we will do. We will give it a show uh, after I've had a chance to thoroughly scope it out and see how it works, and and if I see any problems with it. Cool. I mean, I, I mean that's a neat idea. Even I mean, if, I don't know about security wise, but just the idea that you could run that Linux, yeah, on a USB key is very cool. Definitely a neat idea. Yeah. Um, also, out in the world, unfortunately, as many as half a million 
IIS, that is Microsoft's web server-based mm-hmm. sites, uh, you've probably heard this, Leo, already, have been uh, hacked. Including, um, this, is the, this is the punchline, the Department of Homeland Security. Yes, yes, and the UN and UK government and and uh, the uh, the 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 attack on Barack Obama's site was different than that. There was it, they, they used some um tr- some cross uh, some cross site scripting to make some changes to to Barack's uh, <laughs> campaign site. You clicked a link, but, they'd go send you to Hillary's page. But this one, this one was a SQL yeah, injection, right? Yes, this is yeah, and we've talked about that before. It, it's an SQL injection. It, it uses it's really not Microsoft's fault. It is it is the fault of the web coders for not sanitizing uh. the the input. It's it's you know web 2.0 fundamentally is more interactive. That's the whole idea. You know they all know the notion of like posting comments to blogs and and all of the you know Facebook MySpace stuff where where users are able to supply content. The problem is this content is typically being stored in an SQL a.k.a. SQL database, and that's just sort of like the default database. That's not what I use, but that's what everybody else uses. Um, and so what happens is because – and this is as we discussed in our SQL injection attack episode. If anyone's curious, they can certainly go back and re-listen to it or maybe listen to it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is SQL is a language, so it's possible to inject – language commands and essentially install malicious content on a website. In this case, they're installing JavaScript, which which then is downloaded into innocent users' browsers as JavaScript is. But in this case, it's not JavaScript the website provider wants you to run. It's JavaScript that's been injected remotely into the website. So it then gets downloaded into the innocent user's browser, runs, that installs malware and takes them to a Chinese server, that is a, an IP address in China, which then attempts to use known Windows vulnerabilities to further compromise their system. Hmm. So it's just bad all the way around. Hmm. Um, and um, the only thing you can do is disable JavaScript or or selectively enable JavaScript. You know, I know that lots of people have followed uh, the discussion we've talked about in the NoScript add-on for Firefox. And of course, although it's not as easy to use, it's it's possible to configure Internet Explorer so that it's not scripted by default, and then you selectively enable scripting on those sites where you trust them and or they need to have scripting in order to be functional. So. I mean, one of the things we're seeing, and I and I, I heard a lot about this, of course, at the RSA conference um, earlier this month, is um, we're seeing a huge move toward web-based attacks because this is so-called low-hanging fruit. I mean, these are there are so many vulnerable websites, so many web apps are being written without an eye toward security. That that just creates – I mean it's like a public server sitting there where anyone who knows the tricks is able to install their malware remotely and then anyone visiting that site gets infected. So I mean it's it's like it's the next big problem. And of course we've been talking about this kind of thing 
more from a theoretical standpoint, like you know, this was going to be a big problem. Well, it's it's arrived, you know, to the point where hundreds of thousands of websites are now infected with this junk. Yeah. So uh, something good. to point out, uh, of course, is that uh, even if they're infected, doesn't mean the payload happens. Uh, in fact, the guys who did the research said, you know, a lot of cases, nothing happens when you go to these sites. Also, right. uh, the servers that they point to are, are currently down. As you, right. Whether because it's so successful or more likely because they've been shut down. Uh, right. And that's the problem with, uh, for the from the hacker's point of view is these exploits are only good for a brief period of time. Once they're discovered, they, you know, this the SQL injection still works and the code's still on the site. But it doesn't do anything because the sites that uh, it points to are down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's right um, now not a problem. And I, and I also, by the way, I just saw because we've talked back and forth about disabling JavaScript. Just saw a, a study of the hundred top sites. Eighty percent of them use JavaScript. Yep. It's um, almost universal. Yep. And it's going to be more so. I mean, it, it does power the next generation of the web. Yeah. So I mean, and it's a mixed blessing, unfortunately, yeah. because as we've said many times, you're downloading some web server's code into your browser and running it locally. The nice thing um, about your technique is you can selectively enable it. So once you once you trust a site, you enable it. The problem is the SQL uh, injection attacks often infect trusted sites. So you could trust a site today. Yeah, very good. You, That's you, you a very would, good point. You would trust the Department of Homeland Security, one would think, but in fact, it has the exploit on it. Although you, I guess you know by by. Disabling scripting by default and then selectively enabling it. If nothing else, you are dramatically lowering your attack window. That is, you know, in general, you know, I mean, I will follow links in news right. reports, and right. you know, I mean, there you 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 end up wandering off of your uh, of your well trodden path all the time when you're out poking around the net. It's just sort of the nature of it. I mean, it's it's why it's so cool is all that stuff is out there. So. Unfortunately, it's not always safe. One would hope that a site like DHS, in fact, they said this, oh, we, fa you know, now that we know that that bug exists, we've fixed it. Someone would hope that they would become more secure. So a trusted site would be somewhat safer. <laughs> One would hope. Yeah. Um, a, an old problem has resurfaced. Um, there have been problems with Intel Centrino drivers. Centrino is is uh, Intel's uh, laptop Wi-Fi wi platform. Um, a, a, an old, well-known privilege elevation problem has turned into, it's evolved into a remote code execution problem. Um, I, I bring it up because I just want to make sure that our listeners who are using the Centrino, it's the 2200BG is the is the affected device driver there's like four different varieties there's 3459 or something and 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 a couple others i checked one of my laptops and that's the one that i had i had the 40 the 4559 or something but it's the 2200 bg has a has a known problem the reason this is a concern is that it is the, the way this works is you first of all there's no way to block it no firewall will will prevent this from being a problem because it is an it's an exploit um that it, well it, it, it's a vulnerability in the kernel driver in the actual wi-fi driver which is underneath every other sort of security defense the user can have so the the way an attack would work is that some 
wise guy who thought it would be it was fun to do this would have a laptop uh, at Starbucks, for example, and anyone whose laptop had not been patched to the current version of this driver could have malware installed, even if they're not like hooked up to Starbucks wireless. It doesn't actually you don't need to be even connected to the network. Just the idea, I mean, just having your wireless um, adapter live allows it to receive these malicious frames down at, at the low level and get code installed. Mm. So um, I've got uh, the, the only show notes I had for this week are a bunch of links for for this problem to Intel site. There is one that allows you to run a little app of theirs that identifies the, the, the device driver type and version. Uh, you need to have at least version 10.5 of this 2200 BG wireless device driver. You, if you know how to poke around in Windows and, and bring up the, um, the driver information for your Wi-Fi, you can just do that. I did that on my laptop. That's how I know uh, what, what model and, um, and version I had. And in my case, I was at version 11 point something or other on, the, on, on a different wireless device driver. So I just wanted to, to mention it to our listeners. It's not a, you know, it's not a huge big deal. But, you know, nobody would like to be somewhere in public and and get code installed on their machine. And this is sort of a problem because these device drivers not being mainstream Microsoft problems, you know, may be old. It may not be that anything has updated them for some time. So users who have this Centrino 2200BG should make sure they're at version 10.5 or later. And I've got links on this episode's show notes, notes-142, uh, that you can find at GRC. I imagine that uh, Leo Dane will probably copy those to also over to, good. to to your page. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Um, I, uh, Bruce Schneier, the well-known cryptographer that we've we've talked about and mentioned many times, uh, and I'm annoyed that I didn't get a chance to to say hi to him at the show. He was on one of the tracks, but he was on a different one than I was. And so I, I, I missed, um, you know, being able to shake his hand and hang out with him and say hi. Um, uh, but I loved something that he wrote. He blogged about the conference and, and his what, what he wrote so much echoed sort of what I said last week about some of these booths. Um, he said, I'm just going to quote one paragraph from his blog. He said, the booths are filled with broad product claims, meaningless <laughs> security platitudes and unintelligible marketing literature. You could walk into a booth, listen to a five-minute sales pitch by a marketing type, and still not know what the company does. Even seasoned security professionals are confused. Yeah. I you saw know, that. that was, I thought that was great. Yeah, that, that was exactly the sense I had. Is I mean, they, that's why I said they all sort of seemed to be the same. Because yeah. they were all saying, oh, well, you know, fantastic new security solution for authentication identity. And then you go to the next booth. <laughs> Fantastic news. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, after last week's episode, our um, intrepid transcriptionist, Elaine, shot me a little note. Remember, we were talking about uh, sci-fi and Andromeda strain, I think. I don't remember now what the context was. Um, but she said, hey, Steve, this coming um, 
Oh, we were talking about Michael Crichton uh, b- uh, books. Michael and, Crichton. Oh, that's yeah, right. Michael yeah. Crichton books yeah. and how and how good Andromeda mm. Strain was. Whereas we weren't that impressed with right. you know some of the right. more recent ones. She said that um, this coming Memorial Day weekend, so about three weeks from now, A and E, the A and E cable channel, mm-hmm. are airing a new miniseries of a remade Andromeda Strain. Really. That was done by Ridley Scott. Ooh, I want to see that. Oh, baby, the guy who gave us the first Alien yeah. movie. Um, anyway, there is a there there there's a trailer around. Uh, I I I've tracked it down and saw it. It's funny because I I thought, oh wow, I wonder if my news groups know about that because I created. We have a, a GRC dot sci-fi news group at GRC just because I love sci-fi so much, and it turns out many of the people who hang out in our news on our news server do also. You know, way back weeks ago, there was a thread all about this. It's like they already knew about this. I got to keep more current with my own sci-fi news group um, because I would, you know, absolutely not want to miss this. It will be on DVD. Um, it's being released released in June, I think, on DVD. But oh, Leo, the trailer! Oh, I mean, it looks like it's everything you could want in like a contemporary remade version. Because you know, the original one was what back in '75, I think. I mean, so it was it's dated, even though it's it's a really good story. Well, now we've got, you know, state of the art special effects and, you know, cool, you know, I mean, just like way much better. So I wanted to let all of our sci fi interested listeners know that we've got a new version of Andromeda Strain on the way. And that uh, that will be worth seeing as a little mini series. Yeah. Yeah. And I did have uh, one really cool uh Neat, fun uh, bit of uh, spinrite feedback. That this one was titled "Skeptic is finally a believer," uh, <laughs> and a a uh, a listener, Ralph Montgomery, wrote. He said, "Steve, I've been an avid fan for years, both of your excellent program, Spinrite, and now in the podcast of Security Now. Working in the information technology field for the past twenty-one years, I have used Spinrite on everything." from MFM and RLL drives to today's EIDE slash SATA drives with great success. With these successes, I took every opportunity to evangelize the product to friends and coworkers Yay. everywhere. Yay. One particular coworker has listened to my praise for years <laughs> with, yeah, yeah, sure it works, <laughs> unquote. I eventually convinced him to purchase his own copy of Spinrite a few months ago, cool. which he used sparingly to check new drives after purchase. This past weekend, however, a friend of his referred a young lady to him with a non-booting laptop. A, a laptop this recent college graduate had taken to all her professors and several other friends with no success. She had recent jobs she had a recent jobs data, which she had not backed up yet. Parents, uh-huh. she's a she's a web designer. Mm-hmm. Close parents, that she desperately needed for her client. My skeptic coworker tried everything he could think of to get the system to boot, even removing the drive and attaching it to an external USB cable, and still could not access the drive and data. Finally, he pulled his copy of Spinrite bootable CD-ROM booted the system, and watched it work for about 15 minutes on the first couple of sectors recovering data, then screamed through the rest of the drive, finding nothing else wrong. 
After completing the spin-write cycle, he powered the laptop off, restarted without the CD-ROM, and voila, a booting laptop with all the data intact. A quick transfer to a new laptop, and his friend was very happy, and you now have a convert. Wow, that's great. And then he says, great job, friends, but I already knew that already. Or, but I knew that already, Grin. So thank you for sharing that, Ralph. That's I really great. appreciate it. What a that. nice story, yeah. That's really cool. Shall we um, launch right into our questions? Are you ready? Do you feel good? Let's. Oh, ready. I'm ready to go. Ready to I feel good. Face the music. Let's start with John in Adamstown, PA. He wonders if Vista's user access control UAC is worth anything. Hi, Steve. I think it's user account control. I'm sorry. I always call it user access control. Slashdot recently carried an article describing how simple it was to bypass Windows Vista's much annoying user account control UAC system. The authors of a utility were annoyed by UAC, so they easily coded around it. <clears throat> is this uh, really, if this is true, is there really any security benefit? They claim there isn't. Can you let me know what you think of this? Certainly, I think it's good if UAC prompts before install, but what if the author says is true? It seems pointless to prompt and startup. So I guess they're saying not a utility merely to disable it, but a utility that lets you go right around it. Yeah, this actually came up or came to my attention, uh, I guess, I don't know, a few days ago when Slashdot first had the article. A bunch of people said, hey, you know, what's the story? Is UAC worthless? Is, you know, I mean, right. and it's like, has it been circumvented? It's like, oh, no, no now what? Right. So I, I, I went off and, and did the research, figured out what was going on. Uh, and the good news is this is nothing. So I wanted anyone else who had seen this on Slashdot because it got a lot of coverage to know that this is sort of a bogus report. The The deal is there was some sort of a utility which required admin privileges at startup. Well, when you try to run a, a, a utility that requires admin privileges, uh, UAC gets in your face and says, do you want this to allow it to happen? The problem is that, and this is some sort of like a reboot utility that allows you to do multi-booting or something. I didn't even really look too closely at what it does because they wanted it to run in the startup group. So if you put it in startup, every time you boot, it's going to run. And so it's always going to prompt for UAC permissions. So they decided that was an annoyance. So they recoded it so it no longer does that. Hmm. And that's what was upsetting people. Well, okay, what they recoded it to do is they split it into two parts. There's a service, which you have to be an admin and do UAC to install. And then there's the client that talks to the service. Well, this is the way Windows works. And so this is not, this didn't circumvent UAC or get it out of the way or mean that it's worthless. Because in order to install this privileged service, you have to use UAC to get permission to install it. Now, it's true you're not having to give permission every single time you use it, but you, I mean, you couldn't use Windows if you had to give Windows permission every single time any service did anything. Right. So, so this is just the way Windows works. You, you install something that you're giving privilege to, like a firewall, for example, and then afterwards, it's God because it's down in the kernel doing whatever it wants to. So you're trusting it from then on and not having to deal with it every single time it runs. So this is just UAC the way it was meant to be used, not a circumvention of anything. Got it. So don't get your hopes up, hackers. Jesse in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
wants to know more about the YubiKey. This is that uh, thing we talked about, the Swedish lady from RSA, right? Yep. Aloha, Steve and Leo. When I heard the story of Stina and the YubiKey, I immediately went online to do my homework because the thought of a $4 authentication token was too good to pass up. Well, I've read a little more. I'm not as excited. YubiKey's ordering page has two products available, a single key you have to agree to use for evaluation purposes only, and the, quote, pilot box, which comes with 50 keys. A small business would never go through that many keys, but it doesn't look like Yubico offers any smaller packages. It even costs four euros more per key when you buy them in bulk. More. My other concern with YubiKey is how they're locked into Yubico's web service. Sure, you could purchase the low-level C or Java SDK, but for how much? I took a look at the open-source APIs. They all seem to rely on the subscription-only YubiKey web service. The YubiKeys only come with a one-year subscription, according to the site. Am I missing something obvious? YubiKey does sound like a good alternative to secure IDs, but not the holy grail. Do you know otherwise? And, by the way, thanks for security now. <laughs> well, um, okay, first of all, there's been a lot of interest in the YubiKey uh, um, surfaced by our users. Um, I wrote to Stina and we set up a little – we've got a little dialogue going. She reported – I mean she was really happy with my mention of it last week. More than 50 uh, users and companies who listen to Security Now have contacted really? them wow. by email. Wow. Yep. So it's been been very good for her. That's great. Um, and many people also in the Security Now news group at GRC – I do have a Security Now news group in addition to a sci-fi news group uh, at GRC – and they had a bunch of really good questions because it's sort of unclear from the website exactly how this works. So I said to her, gee, you know, uh, a lot of really good questions are being asked. I don't have the answers. I'd like to find out. So she has sent me um, one of the patents that they've applied for, a in-depth security analysis, an independent security analysis, analysis of how this thing all works. I'm going to figure it out and probably do an episode to explain what this is and how it works because it's got a lot of interesting uh, characteristics. So I sort of wanted to acknowledge Jesse's frustration that, and the sense is that this is still just beginning to happen. Astina said, I asked her like for all the developer documentation, she said, well, we're still working on getting the server documentation done and, and, and putting it all together. So this is a, a relatively new thing. Um, ultimately, I'm hoping that it'll be available, uh, you know, in, in a way that makes sense um, affordably. And I don't have any firm pricing on things like, you know, the subscription where you use the back end service and all that. I certainly like the idea of being independent of that, in which case there's no one year you know, expiration on the key. Well, and yeah, if and you're so, dependent on it, uh, it would, uh, besides the fact that you have to subscribe to that, if their server went down, you're kind of out of luck. Well, it's funny because um, I got a notice from VeriSign the other day uh, to like major accounts saying that for four hours, their <laughs> VIP system Oops. was going to be down for, I mean, you know, like major maintenance and, you know, cleaning out and upgrading and all that. The problem is, imagine if you were dependent on that for authenticating something in mission critical. I mean, you know, during those four hours, you need to do something that requires authentication. I mean, that's really, you can't that's not okay. Yeah. No, that's not okay. So, so, I mean, it, it is the case that, well, I, I, I know, for example, that, um, that Hamachi users similarly, yep. since Hamachi had to be in the loop anytime the Hamachi servers were down, 
the whole Hamat, you could maintain your existing Hamachi connections, but you couldn't initiate any during that window. And it caused people huge pain because yeah. they, got, you know, they were in love with Hamachi and they, you know, suddenly nothing worked right. that they needed to have work. So, right. you know, these sorts of things, I mean, it's one of the reasons for my, for my own, you know, I've talked about CryptoLink, the, the, the VPN that I will be working on as soon as I get the current project finished, um, that it's going to have a, you know, a full, not only TNO, meaning trust no one, but uh, RNO, rely on no one, hmm. so that um, it'll do its job without needing any sort of a third party because, you know, it's just, you can't have that with reliability. Right, right. Yeah. Of course, you running your own server could be unreliable too, but at least it's your own damn fault. <laughs> Nick, well, yes, and, and, and if in fact you're, you're trying to connect to your own server, if it's down, well, you can't connect to it anyway. Right. So. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Do we, now would that be a security flaw to have your authentication running on the same server as the thing you're authenticating? No, two, no, no. Just thought it might be. Nick Bauer in <laughs> Newmarket, New Hampshire, wonders about killing bits. Hi, Steve. I noticed this patch to Windows come down the pipe last update Tuesday, and I wonder what it is. Sounds like it might be a DEP for ActiveX. Or ActiveX control is now a lot safer. This guy must be a cowboy. He's very, very, very terse. So well, what's this patch to Windows come down the pipes last update Tuesday? I, I saw that, too, and I was wondering what it was because they were talking about you know, an, a, a Killbits. Uh, oh, that's what it's called? Killbits? Update. It's oh. called Killbits. Hmm. This is a feature which, you know, thank goodness it, it's, it's in Windows. As we know, Internet Explorer is able to load ActiveX controls. That's, for example, what Flash is. Flash is an ActiveX control that is able to embed itself into Internet Explorer web pages. And, you know, there are some utilities. I actually have one sitting here on my taskbar. I'm looking at it, which is able to disable Flash on the fly because sometimes Flash is a little more Flash than you want. Right. When you're just trying to, you know, look at a web page and little bunnies are jumping all over the place <laughs> or whatever it's doing. You know, I mean, th these things do everything they can to get your attention when, in fact, it's like, okay, fine, just can I just look at the content, please? Anyway, what this thing does is this manipulates Flash's kill bit. Every uh. ActiveX control, every ActiveX control has a kill bit, which you can, which which the user can flip, and what it does is it denies IE permission to load that ActiveX control. Uh -huh. And in in the past, when and this is like a couple years ago, I'm remembering from Security Now episodes, there have been really really bad exploits where Microsoft had no patch. And so our advice was, and we gave people links and oh yeah. Those, you know, to like go into the registry. Here's the key. Yeah, I remember that. And set the kill bit. Yeah. Because that way you'll tur it'll turn it off until Microsoft gets it patched. Then maybe you want to turn it back on if for any reason you need the hairy eyeball ActiveX right. control. Right. I mean, some of these things are not anything anybody wants. And so it's like, and in fact, you can even turn them off without your system having them. You can turn them off preemptively. And then if it, if it comes in or installs or reinstalls, the kill bit stays set, right. and IE is unable to run this thing. So um, what happened is that a third party asked Microsoft to please set the kill bit for them. Oh, interesting. And that, and that was Yahoo. Oh. The, the Yahoo um, 
shoot, I had it in my head just a second ago. Now it's gone. The Yahoo something or other. Messenger? Uh, uh... No, it wasn't Messenger. It was... I uh, can't remember huh. now. It was it was something we talked about actually in the last couple of weeks. It was a known exploit in a in an a, a Yahoo ActiveX control. The hmm. problem is they don't have the facility to notify and download updates on the fly. So uh-huh. this is a, a widely exploited problem, and they asked Microsoft, please set our kill bit for this thing for us. Can you believe that? So that's what that was. Uh, it's not an improvement in ActiveX controls, uh, however much we wish there could be such a thing. Uh, it's just it's Microsoft doing Yahoo a favor. Maybe I wonder if that's part of their courtship. It's a little test. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. Yes, dear. It, it, it's, yeah, it's. Well, you ha- turn the on hat- the kill bit for me, dear. It's, yes, it's dear. The, hat- the Hatfields and McCoys at yeah, the moment. Well, they're not getting along too well together, but they did the kill bit, which was nice of them. Yes. Yes. All right, uh, Amir Katz in Kafar Saba, Israel, figured out how to grab all the SN episodes. Actually, uh, somebody twittered me a, a a shell one-liner for it, but I'll see what Amir came up with. In episode 140, you look for different ways to enable your listeners to download many or all SN episodes, and you did not have a good solution, in my opinion. There's a very <laughs> simple way, since the GRC.com Security Now page has all episodes you can use Firefox with a download them all extension. Oh yeah, that'll work. And download all links of a certain types, including the DTA, using the DTA fo- uh, filters. It doesn't have a predefined filter for PDF files, so I created one. And then with a few clicks, you start a download of all PDF files from the page. Of course, we don't want the PDFs, we want the MP3s, but if you want the PDFs, you could do that. Regards, longtime SN listener and proud owner of Spinrite. Thank you, Amir. So, so I just want to pass that tip on. You can also use uh, curl and a little uh, a little regular expression parsing and create a one-liner that would download any of the Twit podcasts because we use kind of a regular format for the names for this very reason. So SN, uh, Security Now is always SN-0, well, not necessarily 0, it could be number, 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 it could be one, in this case, 142. What uh, I don't know what's going to happen when we get to a thousand episodes. We'll have to we'll have to add a zero. <laughs> the whole thing's going to break down. But right now, you could write a a, a little um, a little. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'll I'll put this in the show notes because uh, somebody twittered it. It's it's short enough that they were able to send it in 140 characters to me using curl, a little uh, uh, probably sed or something like that to to parse it out, and maybe awk. I don't know to uh, to create this kind of repeating, and it was just a little shell script and would get them all. For any of them, all you have to do is, you know, provide the base URL and uh, you can get them all. It's kind of clever. It's funny. You were thinking you were talking about what happens when we go to 999. I'm I'm reminded that I think it's in 2032 or 2036 or something. The the 32 bit seconds counter in the NTP, the network time protocol Mm -hmm. wraps to zero. Really? Yes. And that's <laughs> that's gonna be a problem. We we survived Y two K. When's that with, gonna be? It's like in twenty thirty two. I think it's oh, twenty thirty something. And I've sort of kept my eye on that. I was like, oh goodness. <laughs> well, you, well, you know what's you know what's interesting. Um, uh, Unix runs out in twenty thirty eight because Unix uses uh, you know the, uh, the the start date is nineteen seventy. Uh, well, that's what I'm talking about, Leo. That's the date. Oh, that's you're talking about the the uh, the Unix. 
But it's NTP, 30, oh, because NTP is running Unix. It's 32 bits of seconds. Right. 32 bits of seconds From, starting on January 1st, 1970. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is, it's not is just NTP, date. dude. It's everything. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's bad. <laughs> it's not just the time servers. <laughs> it's everything. Uh, yeah, because, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I presume by then somebody will have had a 64-bit uh, Unix. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'll, I'll, They'll have I, to rewrite I'll, it, I guess, because a lot of, I mean, wow. I don't know how we're going to contact each other. 2038, will we still be around? I think we'll be up in heaven looking down. I hope so. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. 2038? 30 years from now? I'm going to be kicking, I'm going to be going strong. You you probably will. Yeah. I'll be looking down on you. <laughs> saying, it's well, Steve's problem now. And we will have dealt with a 999 podcast number by that time, too. <laughs> Yeah, that's another question. Okay, so we that means we have another eight hundred sixty to go to go. That'll do it. I don't know. I'll take care uh, of it. I think that'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're still doing this in eight hundred and sixty shows. If we still have any listeners oh, left. Oh my goodness. That's more than ten years. So good. All right. Uh, my plan is to do this for ten years. Okay. That's probably what I was thinking. Although, you know, with Twit I gave it four zeros. I thought Twit would last longer, I guess. Not so. Joe Rodericks, listening in Massachusetts, has been clicking on a keyboard. Actually, it's the Gizwiz you need to give about nine. I know. That one needs more. It only has 999. You're right. Okay. It's going to run out next year or the year after. Uh, Steve and Leo, I came across a new login method I thought I'd share. Oh, another one. This mm-hmm. one's from Indirect, an Indirect account, which I opened. Well, the Dutch do it right. Let's see what they've come up with. When you log on, it first asks for your ID. Then it prompts for two security questions. Then it asks for a pin. It's this pin that's interesting. Your pin is a 40, I'm sorry, is a 4 to 10 character numeric password. However, you never type it. On the login screen, there's an image of a keypad which you click your pin based on its numbers or you can type your pin's code. The keypad is a layout just like a telephone, three rows of three numbers. The zero is on its own row at the bottom. On each number, there's a single letter. The letter assigned to each number changes with each login attempt. Oh, that's clever. It's probably in Flash or something, too. So if my pin is 12345, I would look at each number and type the corresponding letters, which may be QOSPX for this login. Then next login could be SLCUQ, Q for, and, and on and on and on. Each time you log in, a different set of numbers or letters. I think this is an awesome idea. It should totally fool a keystroke logger. I won't access my indirect account very often, perhaps just weekly, so I don't find the security questions that bothersome, considering the extra layer of authentication they provide. I may not have explained this well, but I think it's worth creating an ing account just to see. (laughs) It seems to be a pretty simple solution that would fool all but the most sophisticated keystroke loggers. Love the show. Keep up the good work. What do you think? Well, I think it's a really interesting and neat idea. Essentially, what what he's described is he's got a, a fixed pin which is not changing yeah and what it's presenting him with is a translation table which changes every time so on on the screen is a translation table and he looks up his pin by number but he types on the keyboard the letters core the num- the alphanumeric i mean the alphabetic letters corresponding to the numbers right and so they change every time so it's clever the problem is, and I, I, there was discussion of this at RSA a couple of weeks ago, is that keystroke loggers really are absolutely doing 
screen captures now. And so so they would see the keys, but it's all, but it's a one-time deal, right? Uh, exactly. The problem is it's reversible. They, uh, they would, they would capture the screen and see the mapping table. And then knowing what was typed in alphabetically, looking at the mapping table, they go backwards through it and get the numbers out. Mm. And the numbers are what never changes. And at that point they would be able to log in. They only need to him. get it once. In other words, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a nice idea, but it, I mean, and unfortunately, I mean, it would take a sophisticated keystroke logger, but unfortunately, sophisticated keystroke logger is now an oxymoron because <laughs> they all are. They, they really are getting very sophisticated. It's actually yes. the opposite of an oxymoron. I don't know what that is, though. A noxy, noxy, moron. Ryan Bentz in nearby Irvine. Hey, Steve, he says he's waving as he drives by. Wonders about cell phone authentication. Hi, Stephen Leo. In the last episode of Security Now, you mentioned that Bank of America now allows its online banking users to add an additional factor of security for their login process through the use of a one-time code sent via cell phone text messages. I've been I've been using that. I love that. I love that. It seems as though this mode of security is becoming more and more prevalent. But I'm curious about the security of sending cell phone text messages. I remember Steve saying he doesn't discuss sensitive issues with his attorney on his cell phone. Are cell phone text messages? Any more trusted and secure? Is it possible for others to sniff this traffic? Thanks for the great podcast, listener since numero uno. Well, it is a great authentication solution. I should clarify that when I was talking about not discussing sensitive issues with my attorney on the cell phone, I was specifically referring to the old original era of analog cell phones Yeah, because they were literally just open analog radios and any any police scanner or or radio scanner could pick them up and listen. You could listen to typically one side of the conversation, uh, and some of them were quite fascinating. <laughs> um, and I decided I didn't want to be part of you know adding to the fascination of anyone listening to me talking to my attorney. So, <laughs> so today's cell phones are digital, and on my list of things we'll, we will get to is a discussion of the cryptography used. And unfortunately, it's relative lack of strength, meaning that it, both systems, both CDMA and um, and GPS, GPS, G, GPM, uh, GPRS. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where you're going. GSM? Is that what you're trying to say? G, GSM. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm thinking, wait a minute. We have an acronym hell here. CDMA and GSM yeah. both, both have um, been cracked. That is to say, it is possible by somebody who really, 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 really wants to, to intercept conversations. The, the, the question, though, is whether even that really represents, in this case, a problem. Because you are being sent by somebody who wants to authenticate that you, you are the owner of a cell phone and you have it in your possession. So that's what that, the cell phone loop really does is they send you a text message which you you type into the web page saying just got it meaning i have that cell phone so even somebody eavesdropping and it's really difficult to do so on today's era of digital phones not impossible i mean unfortunately um you know possible but as opposed to like really really good crypto which is next impossible. To, yeah. Next to impossible. Right. Um, anyway, the point is that even somebody who happened to catch 
you know, a random text message. Well, you know, they're not, they don't have your established HTTPS secure SSL session with the bank. They, they, and any cookies you've exchanged hopefully are secure cookies. So they're in that, that secure tunnel They're They know they have no ability to get to the page to enter what you just typed in. So even if they, even if it like had a banner, I mean, if it was skywriting and said, you know, here's my one-time code, well, nobody else can use it except you at that moment, and then it's not going to be good again. Right. So then, so this really is. I mean, it is a clever, nice means for 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 doing a a, a multi adding a factor of multi-factor authentication, and uh, I just hope and I presume. That these 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 text messages are sent quickly. I know that many times, for example, um, I'm seeing sites where they require an email loop, and it's like, okay, we'll send you, you know, this, you know, a link to click to authenticate, and then you sit and you sit and you sit, and it's like, okay, this is really not working. If I don't receive my my right. link immediately, right? Email can be so, slow. Email is unpredictable. I have found using this text messaging system at least with T-Mobile, who's my carrier, and Bank of America, that it's it's every time. And actually, a number of other things, uh, services use this. Um, and I've, I haven't yet waited. You can always resend. Well, I think it's going to be very popular. I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's a nice way of doing authentication for people who have cell it. phones with them. It yeah. remi- I mean, it's, it seems to me very much like the security key. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's a one-time password, right? And I'm getting it by the phone, so I don't have to have a dongle with me. I just really like that idea. Yep. Yeah. Moving right along. Uh, Neil Roberts in Liverpool, England, uses a literal firewall. Oh, come on. Literal? Well, kind of. I don't know what the, how, how to describe it, but we'll see what the, I mean here in a second. <laughs> Hi, Stephen Leo. I mean, he's not putting bricks between himself and the Internet, is he? Being paranoid about security, I've been an avid listener of every episode. How about this for the ultimate security answer for online banking, PayPal, eBay, etc.? I have my regular PC which I use for day-to-day use, web browsing, email, Word, etc., but never banking or whatever, you know, secure stuff. For the few highly sensitive applications, I use an old G3 Mac running OS X version 10.4.11. I keep the OS up-to-date as well as the Firefox browser. I have it bookmarked with my bank sites, etc. I only ever visit these sites via the created bookmarks. Good, right? Because those are always secure unless somebody's hacked in and changing your bookmarks. And I never use this Mac for anything other than visiting these bookmarks. What do you think of that? Well, it's funny. For for a long time, and I'm sure our listeners have heard me say this, um, one, of the, one of the pieces of security sort of advice I've had for, for like moms and dads is never let your kids use right. the, like, like the important computer that right. you use. You have your banking and your checking and your stock portfolio and stuff on. Because, because kids mess stuff up. Well, and kids, Lord knows what they're going to click on or where right. they're going to go right. or what they're going to do. And so this notion of, se- I mean, literally having separate computers is like give the kids their own machine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is in dad's den, the, the the adult computer, the parent's computer. And under no circumstances, even when, you know, Susie and Johnny both want to be on the computer at the same time. And, and you know, she's desperate to use your machine. It just has to be no. It has to be off limits. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I really do. I really like the idea. If you've got a, you know, a, an older spare machine around, to segregate the, uh, its its functions, it's going to be pretty good. 
And he's, excuse me, I'm eating a cookie. <laughs> I stopped when you weren't expecting it. You, usually you talk longer than that. Uh, <laughs> he's um, by, and, and by um, only going to the link as he typed it out. So he bookmarked it and typed it out. He prevents phishing. Yep. He prevents getting infected by these well, kinds and, of cross-site he, scriptings or the SQL injections by he, not going to other sites. He also prevents phishing because he's not, he's not even ever, getting email. Right. There's no email on that machine. Right. So there's not literally it's what he uses as his clean, uninfectable, you know, like his his browser interface to his financial things. Would it you know, would uh, using a, a virtual machine in VMware have the same effect? I mean, does he have to use discrete hardware? Um, it has very much the same effect, although you could have something on the outside, which is, you know, filtering or involved in his traffic somehow. And there have been some questions about whether virtual machines are really as secure right. as they as, you know, as being completely virtual. If, if something can, can cross the border. Uh, yep. between the the real machine and the virtual machine. So if yep. uh, you know I'm running my Mac and I'm running uh, you know Hardy Heron the new Ubuntu in a in a virtual machine on VMware is that Ubuntu completely isolated from the Mac no because I can see the Mac drive. I don't know if a virus could go across the barrier but well and again seeing the Mac drive is a perfect example of uh, you yeah. know it's yeah. one of the nice things about again an older machine that you that you it's like, well, and the other thing, too, is the kids probably wouldn't want the old machine because, oh, you can't, right. you know, it doesn't, doesn't do anything. It barely runs a web browser, which is just, you know, all it needs to do. Now, it's theoretically vulnerable because it is on the network. If it's getting online, it's also on the LAN. Yes. And so, I mean, you really, if you really wanted to do it, you would use the triple router, you know, the Y-connected triple router approach to to give it its own LAN segment such that the it can't reach the family land and the right. family land cannot reach it right. and and then you i mean and then it's a matter of discipline but again good security is always a matter of discipline you know under no circumstances should would neil ever go or do anything with that no matter how tempting it is to you know to compromise the security of it so yeah. it, it's up to him to maintain it but you know it's that's great security. Nice job, Neil. And by using a Mac, he's kind of, you know, if, even if it's a Windows network, he's kind of, it's a good idea to do a different operating system, maybe using Linux and, and a Mac network, just because then. Speaking of which, speaking of which, the I put the following question after this one just for that reason. Ah, well, that comes from Dave Mulligan in Calgary, Canada. He shares his own tip for super safety. On a few occasions, you've spoken about using a VMware image of Windows to access questionable websites or do other risky activities. I would suggest trying a Linux live CD rather than going through the effort to reinstall the VMware image. Modern live CDs, like the new Ubuntu install disk, work on almost any hardware and have a very recent copy of Firefox to do your surfing. Yep, it's 3.0 B5 on a hardy heron. Since the live CD does not mount your hard disks, it, it doesn't even... Now, I don't know. Wait a minute. I don't know if that's true. It, 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 maybe they don't mount your hard disks. Your working install is safe, but it also means that any files you want to transfer will have to be put somewhere else on your network or a USB key. The safest way to surf, not to have any way for malware to persist on your machine or network. Because a live CD generally doesn't save state of any kind. Correct. Now, he, he mentions your network. You would really like it also not to mount your network. Right. And that the only way then would be like a USB key. So you would use the live CD to start 
clean every single time. It definitely does not want to mount your hard drives because, again, you want it, the idea is containment. And so, I mean, I, I really like the idea of a workable OS that you boot from a CD, right? And you know, and it's got a browser. Of course, it has to it has to be on the network, or right. it's an you island. Can't browse, I mean, it's, right? It, so it's going to mount your network. In, I'm. My, it's my sense that some live CDs mount uh, allow you to write to drives. You're allowed to save data, so you should really look on the live distro to make sure that that one in particular does not save data to a hard drive. Right. Right. But then, it, but, but I like this because again, it's another, on the other hand, no one wants to reboot their system. That's a big pain too. So, right. you know, maybe an old, an, and here, here Linux makes a lot even more sense than Windows because it's so much leaner right. um, in, in terms of processor need and, and RAM footprint that you, you could just use live CD on, you know, I mean, on a real old PC um, and, and just use it to do your banking and stuff. And again, that's got the advantage over what Neil is doing with his old G3 Mac in that every time you boot it, it starts from a, from a clean slate from a CD. Right. And then, uh, you know, we, and we've, we've talked about um, uh, those window. What was the name of that windows thing where it rest, it starts over each time. That, uh, ready? Not, nah, not ready. Anyway, ready, we did a ready. whole thing on it. You'd think we'd remember <laughs> steady it. state, steady state, steady state. Windows so that would state. do the same thing, right? Kind of. Yeah, kind of. I mean, in theory, um, and it looks like it does a good job. And I mean, it's. I mean, it's built for for public environments and and public access terminals where no matter what anyone does, when you restart the system, it flushes everything away that they did. But it's again, you're you you know you got bad stuff in there. Hopefully, the isolation you know, uh, holds and it's not able to do something, but you know, if it had access to a USB key, it might be able to jump out through there. I mean, again, it's, it's still up to the user to make sure that they've, they've got the various holes closed. And the idea of using a separate old machine with a live, uh, uh with a Linux live CD for somebody who's, you know, really concerned, uh, it, it's a great solution. Steve Barta and Rowlett, Texas. Likes tinyurls, too. I'm a big fan of tinyurl.com and recently discovered snipurl.com from Steve on a previous podcast. Steve and I both use that one because you can make your own tiny URLs, which I like. Yeah. I work for a large defense contractor, so security is a serious concern for us. The problem I have is URLs on our intranet, our internal internet, are often huge with long text strings in them. I've noticed that these monster URLs don't always travel well and sometimes word wrap breaking apart in emails. I found that tiny URL works fantastically for shortening these behind the firewall links. For instance, I can copy paste a long URL into tiny URL and the result, though the link resides outside my firewall, will still take me to the intended destination, but with a much tidier hyperlink. The question is, is there a security risk here? If I'm inside the firewall and I click on a tiny URL public link that directs me to an internal website, is there a problem with this ping pong behavior from a security standpoint? Always a big fan of security now and an avid supporter owner of Spinrite. Well, this is an interesting question. I'm, I'm assuming that the URLs are not useful on the outside of the corporate That's network. That's key, right? Because yes. if you could enter that URL outside the intranet, then it's insecure anyway. Correct. You're relying the, the, on security through obscurity. The technology that all of these tiny URL and snip URL and so forth use is a is a 
an HTTP redirect, there, there's, a, a, there's the ability for a web server to return a, like essentially an updated page to the web browser. Um, I think it's code 302 um, permanently moved or moved permanently is, is, the, is, is the code. So what happened, the way this works is you click on snipurl.com slash, well, as the example I gave last week, I created one that was RSA 2008. So your web browser goes out of the corporate um, intranet across the corporate firewall out to the SNP URL server and attempts to bring up that page. They literally snipurl.com slash RSA 2008 page. What is behind that is a database of, of, of correspondences, of, of short URLs to long URLs. So the page that is retrieved by the browser is one of these 302 pages mm-hmm. that says that page you asked for has been moved permanently to this URL. And that's the big nasty long one. So the browser gets that and then it immediately, instead of showing you that other page, it brings up the, 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 the page where the short URL has been, in theory, moved to, which will be this internal URL that then allows somebody inside the corporate network to bring up the page. So when he talks about it breaking an email, I'm thinking, okay, well, it, he must mean internal email. So he's, he's, he's sending internal email to a colleague saying, you know, check out this new update to our internal internet page or whatever. And so, um, so the, the only exposure that I can see is from an information leakage standpoint. That is, many times URLs have interesting stuff in them. I mean, what could you learn that might be a compromise? He says he works for a large defense contractor. So the question is, is it just gobbledygook, you know, GUIDs and and random nonsense in the URL? Or could these URLs contain human readable content because they are passing in the clear outside of the corporate network. Other than that, I think it's pretty secure. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think he's more worried about this translation issue and does it somehow open it up. But it, the, the real key is that your, your, your internet should not be accessible from outside your network. Correct. Richard Detarnowski, senior systems administrator, administrator at live world incorporated takes issue with the idea of running everything off SSL over SSL. We were talking about that a couple episodes ago. He says, uh, there were several points brought up in this episode regarding running SSL security on a website that I have to disagree with. Well, this guy's a senior systems administrator, so I'm going to listen to him. It might be reasonable to run entirely encrypted on a low traffic site hosted on a single machine. That configuration is not appropriate for a large commercial site. Remember that SSL certificates, yes, I'm aware of wildcard certs, are only valid for a particular host name. When building a high-availability, high-traffic site, there may be many servers hosting various bits and pieces of content. Often a front-end device like a load balancer may handle all the SSL traffic. Only one cert per URL required. This simplifies certificate management and avoids per-server charges. If the site has lots of graphics or video, there might be a significant performance hit for applying encryption. Don't forget, if you embed non-encrypted contents into an encrypted page, 
your visitors get that lame pop-up from their browser unless they've been convinced to turn them off. I could go on and on for several pages, but I'll just stop here. SSL is expensive in hardware costs, certificate, direct, and management costs, design time, and, and I think this is probably the key, operations overhead. Well, I wanted to, I wanted absolutely to share Richard's feedback. Um, I'm sure there's some validity to it. I wanted to take issue only with this idea of it being a performance overhead um, because uh, certainly certificate management is an issue. I mean, right. I, I've got my own little site and I have um, a number of certs because I, I need – I mean, and I have like, you know, grc.com, it has its own certificate. www.grc.com has to have its own certificate. So I'm paying to allow people to connect securely either with the www or without. That's two certificates. And then down I have another uh, server, uh, grctech.com, and it has to have a, a, a certificate. So, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that, that, Dealing with all of these certs is a problem. On the other hand, he talks about mixing content, and and it is the case that the only overhead is the initiation of a connection. He he was saying that, for example, running l- large content like videos and and large images and things would create some encryption overhead, but that's not the case. It is the establishment of the connection. That, ha- that it involves the public key exchange. Once they've agreed using random number generation, they then have a symmetric key, which is extremely fast. I mean, faster than, 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 than reading the content from the hard drive. I mean, or, or, I mean like, n- just not a problem in terms of overhead. And modern browsers leave connections up over time. So, so a browser will establish as up to typically up to two connections to a remote web server. It would bring up SSL connections on them both, and then all of the interaction with the web server for a great deal of time would be over those connections with multiple assets of the pages going back and forth through those established connections. So, I mean, I I absolutely empathize with this notion that. Having everything be SSL would be, you know, expensive in terms of management and costs and and sort of operational overhead, but not actually performance hit for encryption. That's just that's just not there. Okay, good to know. That's actually I was curious about that. <clears throat> the encryption process itself is pretty fast, right? Tyler Larson in Arizona makes a terrific observation, but before he does, <laughs> uh, aren't I mean? We're going to pause for a moment to mention Astaro because there are great folks uh, sponsor the show and they've been with us for so long and we love Astaro. There they go. The guys who do the uh, Astaro Security Gateway. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com is the uh, website. It is uh, the Security Gateway is very well known among security folks. In fact, if you went to RSA, you, you saw some Astaro. I'm sure you saw Astaro prominently there. In fact, they make a big announcement at uh, the RSA Security Conference. They announced their new um, web security gateway, which is a really cool idea. Uh, so they have now the Astaro security gateway and the Astaro web security gateway. Um, let me talk about this hardware security gateway because that's the, 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 the original one because that's the one I have. Built in one device about the size of a router. <clears throat> they have a variety of sizes. 
Unbelievable stuff. Encryption, decryption based on SMIME and OpenPGP. Automatic. They have, uh, of course, two antiviruses for the web. Um, or rather for email. One for the web. They've got anti-spyware. Complete control of traffic of instant messenger, peer-to-peer traffic. Of course, you've got the, you know, the standard UTM stuff, the firewall, the, the uh, intrusion protection. And this thing is amazing. All in one device. Easy to use. Scales very nicely. Uh, you know, you can uh, you can scale up to, I think, 10 gateways so without additional load balancing. So it really is a nice solution as you grow. Uh, let me, if you want to try this in your business, call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. 877, the number 4, a star, special uh, discount, by the way, for Cisco PIX users who are looking for a replacement at the end of life to the PIX. And I think the Astaro Gateway would be a great choice for you. The web gateway involves UR is, is really a cool solution as well. URL filtering, malware detection, complete application control and bandwidth management, uh, directory integration, clustering, dual antivirus engine. It's got HTTP and FTP scanning and uh, just very slick. Phone home protection. Find out more at ASTARO.com and to get a trial a unit in your business, call 877, the number 4, ASTARO, 877 427 Eight two seven six. Nobody does security better than a Staro. A S T A R O dot com. We thank them for their support. All right, now let's move on, ladies and gentlemen, to the terrific observation of the week. Tyler Larson does it from uh, Arizona. I'm not sure who caught on to this, but the keynote given on hierarchical temporal memory that Steve pointed out from RSA 2008 makes one thing very clear. This is the beginning of the rapidly approaching end of CAPTCHA. The type of problems that this new type of AI, this, the, Numenta, the Numenta AI, is already able to solve are exactly the same set of problems posed by websites in trying to determine whether or not you're human. For example, read the text in the noisy background, identify words in this noisy audio, or even identify which of the following pictures are kittens. Well, that's, what's it, that's what they did, didn't they? they were, yeah, it's yeah. so good. I mean, it's remarkably good. As this new AI technology gains footing, we're going to have to rethink our approach to guest authorization. Gone will be the days where we can simply sort based on human versus machine. We'll instead have to grant authorization based on whether the human or machine is acting on behalf of an otherwise allowed party. That's a good point. My agents might be logging in and creating that email account automatically for me, and that's intended. Obviously, the implications to the security world are significant. This is an extremely difficult problem to solve, and if we don't get a head start on it, we're going to find ourselves woefully behind when the bad guys start catching on. I think security certifications everywhere. You'll need a personal cert to do anything on the net. Well, and and our listeners will remember from the coverage that we gave to CAPTCHA how surprisingly difficult it is at the other end of a Internet connection to tell whether somebody is a human or a machine. The Turing test. The tour, exactly, the classic Turing test. And so I think what I liked about, about Tyler's observation is, I mean, if, if anyone's interested and did not have a chance to yet go look at um, uh, Jeff's tremendous presentation of his hierarchical temporal memory uh, at the RSA conference, it was in the keynote. Uh, again, it's at SNP URL, S-N-I-P-U-R-L.com slash RSA two zero zero eight. That'll take you to the page of all of the of the, of the keynotes and and um, he uh, uh, Jeff just does a. I mean, he shows pictures 
that this technology of theirs is able to correctly identify. I mean, it's just it's it's jaw droppingly um, impressive, and and so it it truly does make the problem of of performing this kind of dif- differentiation much more difficult. Interesting, yeah. Well, it's a brave new world. I mean, if if he if if Jeff Hawkins can create these, you know, these uh, these chips that work like the human brain, every all bets are off in every respect. I mean, <laughs> we got a whole new. I mean, that's the capture losing capture is the least of it. That's true. I mean, we got to. I mean, everything changes all of a sudden. And he talks in his book on intelligence. He talks about the implications. The last chapter uh, talks about the implications of uh, a chip that thinks like humans. And uh, I mean, he he says, you know, they're not going to take. It's not like we're going to suddenly be faced with robots that want to take over the world. He said, but things like air traffic control, uh, you know, weather forecasting, a lot of stuff can be done by machines that humans do right now. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Not bad stuff. Well, maybe some bad stuff. <laughs> Mr. No Name in Detroit shares some additional sobering truth. I have a small computer repair company. While I finish up my computer science degree, and like the listener that wrote in during episode 140, I too maintain small mechanics shops computer systems. One day when I was updating the office computers, the service guys called me out into the garage to look at a computer and lo and behold, they were ripping shops clients CDs to the computer and wanted to know how to get the data onto an external hard drive so they could take it home. They were also getting data from thumb drives left on key rings and MP3 players. I worry less about the music data and more about the personal photos that anyone may have left on a thumb drive they don't want to get out. We talked uh, in episode 140 about a mechanic. So actually a guy sent in the note saying a mechanic that uh, stole everything. <laughs> Any kind of if you leave data in your car it's gone. Yeah, I thought it was just worth refreshing one more time. I mean, yeah. this was not necessarily anecdotal. Apparently, this is just what goes on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no offense to mechanics all over the planet, but um, it's clearly something that is happening, and our listeners ought to just be aware of it. Get yourself a valet key and lock everything in the trunk, kids. Yep. Or take it with you. And we're going to do a bonus, a bonus one. This is the quip of the week from listener Roger. Are you ready for the quip of the week? Funny how VeriSign's EV certification has VeriSign authenticating itself. Surely you'd think they'd get someone else to vouch for them, even if they are supposedly VeriSign. (laughs) I got a a kick out of that. Mm. You know, we've talked about the the chain of of um, of certification or authentication where where you have an SSL certificate that is that is signed by somebody you trust to have done their homework, to have done due diligence to verify the identity. And so what does it mean when VeriSign signs VeriSign's own certificate? I guess they're very sure about who they are. Yeah, but are you sure about who they are and should you trust them? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think so. That's why we have key signing parties. It's that chain of trust. We go out and, you know, here, I am who I say I am. You see my driver's license, everything. Could you sign my key? My PGP yep. key. Yep. Ah, oh, we've reached the end of this fabulous episode, but it's just the beginning of your quest for security. If you want more, you can get more. Use that uh, Use that download all script for your Firefox or curl and said, but somehow you can download it all, all, the, all the shows ever recorded. Steve's got uh, a list of them all at grc.com. And along with that, you'll find the show notes. 
You'll find transcriptions of every show in PDF form. I mean, it's just a great treasure trove of security information. All 142 episodes. GRC.com while you're there. Make sure you take a look at Spinrite. Steve's baby. His pride and joy. That program that saves hard drives right and left. It's the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility. I use it. So should you. Spinrite. It's at GRC.com. Steve, we'll see you on the radio show. Steve joins us every Saturday on the yep. Tech Guy Show to talk about uh, security. And, of course, next Thursday for Security Now. Have a great week, Steve. You too, Leo. Thanks very much. Security Now.